0: He who goes about to reform the world must begin with himself, or he loses his labor. Saint Ignatius of Loyola. Bending, not breaking. The Dragon Prince edition. Book two, Sky. all right everybody welcome back to another episode of bending not breaking i am so excited we are here this is going to be a fun different kind of episode and i'm really excited to kind of dive into it but before we talk about what we're gonna do i want to introduce one of our guests and then by one of our guests i mean our only guest for this episode because we only have one so let me tell you a little bit about who we got His name is Trevor Warren, and he is in Duke Divinity School as a seminarian, and he is in school with me, which is kind of fun. And he is in the process of becoming ordained with the UMC, which is the United Methodist Church. He's a filmmaker, he's a creative, and he is a co-host of his own podcast called Just Us, which explores the intersections of faith, justice, and contemporary culture. He's a pretty niche, Methodist kind of nerdy man. And it's wonderful because I'm glad he's here with us because it's going to be really helpful for what we're doing on today's episode. So Trevor, welcome to the podcast. How are you feeling
1: right now? What's going on? Man, let me tell you, honored would be an understatement of how uh, I feel being here. Um, I'm really, really excited. Uh, You know, when we first met, I heard you know, one of the first things I, I heard you was like introducing yourself is that you had a, a podcast that talked about, you know, Avatar and Legend of Korra. And I was like, oh my gosh, those shows literally shaped me, yeah. <laughs> you know, growing up. I like, I remember sitting in my grandparent's house, like watching as a 12-year-old boy, these shows. And and really looking back at how much they like shaped me, even though I didn't really like realize at the time. And I was like, well, this is someone I obviously have to be friends with. <laughs> so and I- lo and behold, be- a lot of our
0: classes were together. We ended up in like group me where we have with the same friend
1: group. It's pretty neat. I know. It's obviously the universe wants- us to to be doing this right yeah, now so. right. <laughs> yeah it's like
0: everything has been leading to
1: this moment right? Exactly. <laughs> this is the highlight of, of my life so far so <laughs>
0: okay well thank you for agreeing to join me I, I hear it's an honor but it's an honor that you're joining us because uh I'm excited to kind of share what we got going and what we have planned on this episode with our listeners, I think that they will enjoy it. At least some of them will, right? And we can't, we can't always please everybody, but if we get a couple, it's always a win. (laughs) So before we dive in, Trevor, like, can you just give us a little bit of maybe in the, what's the snapshot? What's the, the summary of how you got to, what led you to be in seminary at at Duke like what what brought you to this point
1: Mm -hmm. yeah so you know I I, um I started feeling a call to ministry when I was about like 16 and and this just kind of give you like context for um what kind of brought me here but uh, I spent a lot of time uh really wrestling with a lot of questions you know that I just kind of took for granted um in the church uh my mom uh got Uh, chronic illness when I was real young um, like sixth grade and you know I remember that was the first time I really started questioning like why are these bad things happening and so a lot of my interest in like theology and um, kind of theological education uh, was kind of my attempt to kind of come to terms with a lot of those questions Um, and I on the way as I was like reflecting on a lot of these issues of like, you know, what's the relationship between science and religion, you know, what's, you know, why do bad things happen to good people? Um, Why do people, some people go to hell, you know, for eternity and some people go to heaven. And, you know, these were things I was really struggling with. And so I saw, you know, approaching uh, a seminary um, though. I wasn't always necessarily Duke uh, how I approached it. Uh, was very much of like a way to reconcile a lot of these issues. Um, and I just, on the way and reflecting on it, I encountered a lot of people that went to Duke, a lot of important people in my life. And it, over time, just kind of uh, felt like the place I needed to be. Um, and it's interesting because I'm definitely, especially um as I interacted with a lot of people at Duke, they kind of reframed a lot of my concerns from trying to intellectualize and figure out the, the problems it, present in, in religion and, and Christianity to making me see it much more as like a invitation to participate in the mystery, you know, that is- Ooh, I love uh, that language.
0: I love yeah, that language. And,
1: and, and I think that, that that's such a, especially my culture coming from like South, you know, Northeast Texas, uh, very evangelical, um, you know, uh, conservative, socially conservative uh, culture It was very much this idea of like spirituality is something you have to figure out in your head. You know, you have to figure Mm -hmm. out all these specific beliefs and if you don't have the right understanding, you may or may not (laughs) burn in hell for eternity, (laughs) you know, and so, but if you look at um, traditional spirituality and especially in my Methodist tradition, there's more, a lot more to that, Um, that it's less about intellectualizing and much more participating in uh, the, the language and practices of our specific tradition in order to help us understand what all this is to the best yeah. of our ability. So that's a, a long way of saying, uh, how I got to Duke. um, and, uh, Also, Duke just offered me a good scholarship money too. (laughs) Yeah,
0: (laughs) so 100% same. Right, people forget.
1: forget, Like, I'm going to be completely honest. Money did play a factor in that.
0: Oh, (laughs) 100% for me too. There is zero chance I would be able to be at Duke without a (laughs) significant (laughs) uh, help. So, thankfully, (laughs) that that came along. So, let me ask you this: Uh, I, I. it's always interesting grappling with people who have a a foundation in any particular religion. And then I, I come up to them and say, yeah, I'm treating, you know, Avatar, the last airbender and the dragon prince as sacred. And I usually get one of two looks. One of the looks is like super judgy and being like, and I just get this, I can't, like, it it doesn't translate on a podcast. I just made a face, but it's like, it's, it's like, I get this judgy look Um, and I all, then I get like, it gets kind of quiet and be like, well, what do you mean? (laughs) Like, and, and it's just like this, especially when that comes up at Duke, there are some people who just, I get that vibe. And then there's a whole opposite group of like, oh, wow, that's so cool. Tell me more. What do you mean when you say that? And then they're just like really curious. And what is your reflection on treating non, coming from a Christian perspective, Treating something other than the Bible as sacred—what is that? How does that feel to you? What is that like to you? Give me, give me the rundown.
1: Yeah, as as I kind of think about your question, uh, I'm I'm kind of reminded of uh, our Old Testament class, both me and your your Old Testament class um, that we took this past year with uh, Dr. Brent Strawn um, at Duke, and. I really appreciated the analogy that he kind of started off the the semester with, um, kind of our first lesson, which was this idea that not just the Old Testament, but the Bible, um, Scripture in general, is this sort of language. Um, and I and I would go even farther to say that every part of the Christian tradition, you know, be it doctrine, dogma, um, you know, liturgy, anything like that, is, is a sort of language uh, rooted. In scripture, um, uh, though though not necessarily always. um, But it is all of it together kind of creates this language that we are using to interpret the reality that we have experienced of the world and that those who came before us experienced. Um, And and so thinking like that, I I think that's a helpful way for getting at the, the core of your question, because I think too often we look at you know, especially the Bible itself as is, is good old uh, sola scriptura, Protestants, scripture alone, um, this idea that the Bible um, and, and even uh, to, to an extent like doctrine, dogma, um, all these different things that we kind of hold um, as authoritative um, are, are not necessarily the objects of our faith in themselves, but are more uh, uh, parts of this language that we're using to tell this story. Um, this the story that we see uh narrated through scripture. Um and and don't get me wrong, like I think scripture is an important narrative um, and offers a very, at least for me, a very um detailed and, and holistic narrative of you know what the world was, is, and could be. But I, I also recognize that there is a degree to which language is going to fall short. Um, and because language is descriptive, uh, it, that means that the language we're using itself is not necessarily the, the truth that we are um, talking about, that it's talking about the truth. And, and when you look at it that way, uh, you're able to see that even if there are other things that are saying the same thing, ever, other languages that are, you know, on the surface may look different. If you look closely, a lot of them are saying the same thing. And so when I look at things like Avatar or, you know, even things like Harry Potter, um, you know, Lord of the Rings even, um, you know, different forms of literature, I don't have a p- huge problem with looking at them in, in a similarly spiritual way because, I mean, if the truth lines up with the truth that I find in Scripture, I mean, that's, that is truth, you know. Uh, we're both using language to talk about truth, and just because I use a different language to, uh, uh, you know, identify it doesn't mean that it can't be identified with another truth. Um, and and, I, and so I think that's a very important thing for us as uh, post enlightenment, um, you know, not just Christians, but you know, post enlightenment um, um, Americans, Westerners especially, to to kind of realize um, in order to really understand what spirituality is about, um, and the fact that you know we don't know what's going on. We we only have our language to best tell what's going on, but the the language itself is not the object of of what we claim to be true it is a way of helping us describe the world and understand the world and and the reality that we find ourselves in Um, but it 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 can also be shared and you know uh in and translated in other ways um so yeah i I think that's that's how i i look at it
0: it is a fallible experience right our our attempts at communication with with language exactly and i think that that can be Lifted up just by the sense of like, there are so many words that are in other languages that are not in the, in English, right? Uh, There are words in German that don't exist in English. There are words in Japanese that don't exist in English. And it's the same way when we try to communicate with a fallible language, we are, we're going to, there's, there's going to be something left to be desired. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just an interesting way to think about it. And I, I love that kind of comparison because I think language is a really unique um, thing. And, and it's really funny because, you know, I have a love-hate relationship with Strawn and it's one of those things where I I, I, I'm probably going to be referencing him more than once today. Speaking <laughs> of which, another thing that came up in that class was cons- like about how to approach a sacred text
2: Mm-hmm. And
0: one of the things that he preaches, <laughs> preaches about, one of the things he mentions and lifts up multiple times was that, you know, it's, it's, not, it's more about how we are engaging it than it is about what we are engaging. Uh, and he, uh, one of the things he lifted up a lot was the idea of you have to read it, you have to read it again you have to read it slowly and you have to read it again slowly. And then I, I, there's probably another read some way, shape or form. I'm forgetting what it was. He usually has things grouped in four, right? But just the idea that it's when we read it slowly and repeatedly and with focus, um, that kind of effort, honestly, is what makes the text or whatever we're engaging more sacred, right? It's, it's not that the text is itself is not necessarily sacred, but how we engage with it and the way that we treat it is what makes it sacred. And so, I think that that's something that um, resonated with me as I as I learned that and as I engaged with it. Because I was like, oh, I'm just going to apply this over here. <laughs> um, does that does that resonate with you too? Is that something?
1: Yeah, no, that totally totally resonates. And and you know, just to talk a little. Theologically, you know, because, you know, that's the language I'm I'm most fluent in. Um, it, the Bible and, and our encounters with Scripture isn't necessarily about what the Bible itself is doing, what the text itself, but what, you know, for us as Christians, what God through the Holy Spirit is doing. And so it's about really making ourselves aware uh, to a presence that is already there, um, within the the words that that you know may change every single time, and how those words are used by the divine um, to to bring us into uh, new experiences and to help us encounter uh, you know truths in ways that we didn't really you know necessarily experience before. Um, and, and I think that's what's so cool about Lectio Divina, the practice that we you know took part in in that class, um, is that. It, it allowed you to encounter the text in, in a way that was less about you searching for these ideas and, and specific, you know, points uh, that were made in the text using like uh, critical methods or, but specifically it was about how do we read it in a way that we are receptive to uh, God's encounter with us in the text and, and thus through that being able to be shaped and molded accordingly. Um, and and, and I, I truly believe that that can be done, you know, through any work of, of art, through any work of creativity. Obviously for me, because I have the scriptural narrative as kind of my base understanding of reality, uh, it all connects back to that. But that doesn't mean I can't experience, you know, God uh, speaking to me um in other places and other uh, forms of literature. Um, and because, you know, spirituality, like I said, is just a language. Um, so yeah, I totally agree. Sweet. Well, I'm glad we agree because, you know, <laughs> 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 we're
0: going to do it. <laughs> yeah, perfect. Um, yeah. And I think the only other thing that I want to lift up about what being what a sacred text is, is that, you know, it's when we engage with something we're we are assuming that it is more than entertainment. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, like we don't just read the bible for fun or we don't read the quran just let's just go read this for fun right we are seeking something from it and it, it like if taken seriously theoretically we can we can gain something we can reap the benefits and and theoretically there are rewards to fruit to pick if you will that is growing there if we let it uh appear to us and so I think one of the things that is really integral to this is that when we treat something as sacred, it does not mean that we believe that it is infallible. Mm -hmm. And that goes for the Bible as well as it does for any, anything that we might be engaging, whether it be the dragon prince or another fiction novel or avatar, right? It's not that it is infallible. It's that it is going to be beneficial for us in our construction, in our growth, in our moral uh,
1: development. If we Give it that attention and that contemplation. Does that mean how do we feel about that? Absolutely, and and I think there's a sense in like even in the presence of those fallibilities in the text, you know, like you know, just look look at the Old Testament, you know, there there's there's a lot of them, you know, from violence to treatment of women um, to to you know genocide at times. Um, Those are present and there, Um, and I don't necessarily think that. Every reading should have to, you know, look at those as, oh, well, it's there. That's okay. That's not how it's supposed to be. But there is a sense, I think, like even in those fallibilities that, you know, we are still able to be shaped uh, by the divine um, in that, uh, you know, for for if you see, you know, treatment of women or women being treat, treated, you know, I know a lot of uh, feminist scholars, um, biblical scholars will look at that and say, hey, you know, Let's look at this, you know, woman's experience as a, you know, lesson, um, as something to look at. And so I think a lot of times, you know, when we encounter these texts, then fal- the fallibilities might be just what, you know, we're supposed to see and to recognize those as fallibilities and, in, in a sense, uh, be be shaped by that. Um, and, and so, yeah, I, I totally see that.
0: I think it's still super valuable, though, right? It's one of those things where when we begin to, Anytime anything becomes certain, I believe that we have. Learned. No,
1: yeah, exactly, exactly, and and and, at the end, and for me, that's if you go into the text with some sort of agenda, uh, with some sort of expectations of what you're going to find. Kind of in the same way, even doing like you know uh, exegesis, where you're like critically examining the text. That that's not really those are helpful, but that's not really doing. That's not having a spiritual encounter with the text. Um and, and it requires a sense of humility, honestly, to come into the text, uh, sort of emptying oneself out and to just be led by the text for all its, you know, uh, you know, warts and all um whatever fallibilities are present, uh, you know, acknowledging those, but being open to the possibility even if you don't affirm them, there may be still a way that we are able to be shaped and and, and formed in the presence of those fallibilities. Um, in a way, if anything, just to acknowledge that they are there.
0: Well, thank you for kind of indulging me in this conversation because we haven't really we've kind of brushed up against this conversation on on the main feed of the podcast, mm-hmm. um, but we've we've never really like really grappled with what this means. And so I'm I'm glad that our listeners will have this as kind of a, a resource to kind of at least get a sense of where we on the podcast are coming from when it comes to how we're approaching the things that we are covering on the podcast. Absolutely. Okay, okay, okay. Okay. Before we get into the nitty-gritty of the show, I want to make sure that we give everyone a chance to remember what's going down in this season of the dragon prince in book two and so in order for us to do that i have warned you and subjected you to the fact that you will be responsible for a season recap and you will only
1: have 45 seconds how do you feel about that um, terrified but ready you know i have the hope of jesus on my side so (laughs) let's do this let's do this spirit is with me
0: that's what's going to help you do better than me dang (laughs) all right let me get ready with a nice little timer all right on your mark get
1: set 45 seconds go Alright, so Zim has been born. Callum wants to learn magic, but he's being told he can't. Uh, whereas Ezra is trying to teach them how to fly. You have Callum and Claudia show up and they're acting all happy and friends and but secretly trying to get them back. Everyone's cool with it except Rayla because she kind of suspects something going on. Eventually she reveals that after Claudia reveals to Callum that his dad's dad and he's really upset, doesn't know how he's going to tell Ezra. Uh, then they are uh, uh, run away from Claudia and and uh, Soren uh, find a pirate with no eyes uh who teaches about his experience uh, of sailing and how uh calum is trying to use that to understand the sky arcana meanwhile you have viren who is found uh playing with this mirror but isn't real sure about it so he decides to go and have a council with the kingdoms but it doesn't work out and comes back and gives over to the Ah. yeah
0: so good man there is so much going down oh man man yeah i'm telling you geez man well, I feel was, like any faster, I would
1: have just like passed out, honestly. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. exactly.
0: All right. Well, you got most of it. I don't even know if I need to do it. I thought you <laughs> did. <really laughs> I feel like yeah. I at least got to like the halfway point. <laughs> For sure. Yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. 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 There's a few things that you did leave out. So I want to try and get to them. All right. Uh, I'm going to give myself a countdown. Let me do. Oh, good. Maybe here we go. Okay. <laughs> let me do it on my, there we go. Okay. Now we're talking. All right. On my mark, get set, go. Okay, 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 so Callum Karst, you know, starts the season with some moon magic and he's like, Zim can't fly, and then Claudia and Sword and try to convince the boys to go back. And then Rayla's like, illusion trap. And then they fly away on Fifi, and then Fifi falls out of the sky because you know there's no moon. And then there's like a pirate Velas, and then there's you know no eyes, like you said, and then there's across the sea and the sky arcanum stuff happens, and then there's the summit of the five kingdoms, and then Viren Man a little bit, and then flashbacks of Sarai and Harrow, and they kill the magma titan you know, and they feed a bunch of people, and then, you know, Sarai dies conspicuously, and then Sorin fights a dragon, and Viren's, like, been doing pretty sus stuff with the mirror, and then Viren, you know, all the things, Callum, dark magic, Price, Nightmares, Ezrin's, except dad dies, returns to Catullus, and then wake up with primal magic urges. <gasps> I think you did it. Primal magic urges. Primal urges? How do we feel about that? That's an interesting little, okay. That's <laughs> what it is. <laughs> it's a fantasy Um, world sure primal urges (laughs) nightmare or something else anyway i digress um all right well that was fun we got a chance to give everybody uh, a little bit of what's going on um i 45 seconds is longer but also not nearly enough to to do a full season um anyway okay cool all right well we're gonna dive into the rest of our fun stuff then To tackle a, a sacred practice, and the first practice that we are tackling today is the thing called lectio divina, and we've talked about it before. We've done it before on the podcast. But uh, Trevor, do you do you mind, with your kind of understanding uh, and your your background, which is a little bit more extensive than I? Can you give us just a, a brief, like, what is a lectio divina, and like, what does that mean? And
1: do you, if you remember and recall, where does that come from, and what's it rooted in? Yeah, so it's um, basically, uh, you know, Latin for uh, sacred reading. Um, And it is a traditional um, practice of reading scripture that uh, has a lot of ties with the early monastic movements in Christianity, which was a way of not just studying the scripture, you know, from a very intellectual, like, I get this point, this point, this point. I take this critical analysis um, to make this sense of this uh, text but it's more of like an encounter with God in scripture, um, or, you know, the encounter with the mystery, you know, if you will, um, and a way to be able to be shaped by it that isn't always going to be the same each time you encounter it, you know, and and that's kind of like where we get into this idea of like the the living nature of scripture, you know, Mm -hmm. and and, and Lectio Divina, Divina is really the epitome of that, because it sees scripture as less of a a static document of truth that you have to follow and check boxes off and uh, to make sense of. But it's an encounter with the divine that you be able to gain something new each time you participate in it. Yeah. Um, and by doing that, you're ultimately being shaped and brought closer to uh, union with God and to mm-hmm. one another. And so uh, I love it, you know, um, and especially as someone who uh so often especially in seminary where we're having to do a lot of critical analyses of text you know and looking at the historical context and the literary form um and the the contextual analysis you know it (laughs) it, 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 gets hard to look not look at scripture that way all the time I think one of the things that was uh a unique experience for
0: me is that I have a interesting relationship with prayer as a, as a general rule. I I don't know how I feel about it at, uh, at any given time, it changes and ebbs and flows, but one of the things that I realized and that I was kind of like, uh, there was insight brought to me while we were doing Lectio Divina as an exercise for class, that Lectio Divina is a form of prayer. Mm -hmm. And that's something that was like, Oh, prayer isn't always dear God. Like, it's like, you know, it it doesn't, like, it has a completely different format. And so I I think when I reframe this exercise and say the way that we're doing this is a form of prayer, all of a sudden I feel way, I feel like prayer is way more accessible (laughs) um, to me. And so I, I find that to be just something worth noting for people who are listening and are, and are curious, but yeah, I kind of, uh, from from my understanding, the, the Lectio Divina that I kind of understand and where it came from, I think it was Guijo II who talked about the, like the ladder of monks, and there were four rungs on the ladder, and essentially, uh, that was the kind of the beginning of Lectio Divina, and uh, I talked about those four rungs and that kind of translates into these, these four steps that we will engage with together. Um, and so what we'll do is we'll kind of get started, but in order to do that, I'm going to need your help. I have uh, transcripts pulled up and we're going to, we're going to do this the right way. We're not going to pick a quote that we picked. We're going to pick a random one. And so what we're going to do is I have this pulled up and I want you to give me, I'm going to give you a, uh, a number which is going to be episodes one through nine then I'm going to pick that one then I'm going to dive into that episode and I'm going to give you another number and then we're going to wheedle down all until we get one quote are you ready um no but sure okay here we go this is grin speaking welcome back I hope you had a pleasant trip I'll read it one more time welcome back I hope you had a pleasant trip so step one of Lectio Divina in the way that we process it on the podcast is step one is what is literally going on in the text right now? Uh, and so do you happen to recall in episode seven, what is going
1: on when Grin says, welcome back? I hope you had a pleasant trip. Well, that was like when Viren had gotten rejected by the the Kingdom Summit and was all in a sour, depressed mood and, and just sees Grin all cheery hanging in the dungeon right yeah that's exactly
0: right Viren responds with like something along the lines of like how are you so cheerful (laughs) um yeah and you know that's just that's just grin right so welcome back i hope you had a pleasant trip well you know congratulations trevor step one is like you you nailed it that's it we got it thirty thousand
1: dollars of seminary education at work (laughs) look at what duke is paying for look at that
0: (laughs) so we're moving on to step two already which is great so step two this is where we start getting interesting and so I want to figure out uh the allegory here and so what is the allegorical uh what does it remind you of in both the rest of the dragon prince any moments in the dragon prince that we have seen but also allegory in other works of fiction other works uh, other stories that we know of so I'm going to read it one more time and let us think for a second Welcome back. I hope you had a pleasant trip. Yeah.
1: So yeah, you, you mentioned at the beginning I'm I'm have a filmmaking uh background and and that entails a lot of, you know, narrative uh uh study of narrative and, and structure and, and script writing and, and all that jazz. And and uh so I, I definitely look at this I like to look at characters uh a lot of times as like on their own hero's journey. Um and, and in Virin's case you know, he he has been on this journey um, and and went on this journey that kind of climaxed with this or what he thought would be climaxed with this, you know, summit where he would finally get what he wants um, and, and finally have the, the ability to, to fulfill his story. But it didn't work out and then he gets back and he's told he's removed from the council and uh, it's just, you know, he's at like, you know, uh, rock bottom in a sense and uh, he encounters Grin just hanging there. Uh, and, and kind of uh, ironically, is asking him, or grin is asking him, uh, uh, "Well, have a good trip." Well, obviously not. <laughs> but uh, it's like literally, his he feels like his life is over, and feels like his life is over. You know, I, I've literally done everything I possibly could. Uh, there, there, there's no hope. It's, um, like, it's like no grin. Read the room. Exactly, and, and we know that after this, that that's kind of the point where he goes and and uh, basically, you know sells a soul to the, to the mirror man, um, uh, the mysterious mirror. And which is, you know, in my opinion, kind of like the equivalent of, you know, uh, going to see the puppy in the van, you know, like, why not? Everything else is ruined. Uh, what, what could this hurt? You know, I, I've lost everything. Couldn't get much worse. And so, uh, that, that, that's kind of like a turning point in his own story. And it kind of, uh, shows just how low at a point he is wow I love that I think that that's so interesting that
0: you kind of lift up that irony piece because that's I I went in a similar vein but I went in the sarcasm I like I know know. Grin here is not being sarcastic at least I don't think he is um but I immediately went to like Rayla who is so acerbic Mm -hmm. with her with her language and she's so sarcastic and it comes in and you know, had anyone else said this, I would have heard it as sarcasm. But for mm. for Grin, it was like, no, I genuinely hope you had a pleasant trip. Right. <laughs> like, I was like, I that really was great. I hope it was wonderful.
1: Well, and doesn't he, like, afterwards say something along the lines of, like, you know, I could see myself as shackled down or I could see myself as shackled up. Right? <laughs> and right. I was like, the kind of guy just Grin is. And it's interesting because I, I, I wonder...
0: I wonder what his relationship with Viren would be if he did respond, if, if he wasn't so, so optimistic, I wonder Mm -hmm. um, if he might have more, I wonder if he'd be able to convince Viren a little bit more, a little bit better (laughs) if he wasn't so optimistic. Um, I don't know but like, maybe not because Viren's probably going to keep him there regardless, but I, I, you know, it just, it makes me wonder what that would be like if he weren't so optimistic.
1: Yeah, it, you could definitely see him as like a little bit, you know, too optimistic. But but I do think, you know, I I also see for me uh, with this scene is it kind of sets up a contrast contrast between Beer and, and and Grin, um, especially like uh, how similar their situations are. If you think about it, like Grin's you know journey has obviously hit a bit of a snag in the sense that he you know is now in a dungeon chained up and was doing everything fine. Um, and then you have Viren who, you know, you know, we talked about how things weren't going his way and it's kind of his rock bottom and, and you see these kind of differing approaches to responding to that. And, and I would like to think, you know, Grin kind of, for me at least, you know, shows the proper way to look at it. You know, you, you, uh, you know, can't change what happened, but you can change your, your outlook on it, um, and maintain a sense of optimism and hope, uh, to keep you pushing forward. Or you can be like Viren and just give up, you know, and just be like, well, you know, I just gotta, you know, go darker even, you know, and, and I, I will literally do whatever it takes to, to get back where I was, rather than the sort of release uh, and acceptance that, that Grin has. Ah, man. Okay. So, step
0: two is this allegory, right? Where do we see moments like this? What does this remind me of in other moments in the show, but also outside of the show? Is there a moment outside of the show, outside of the Dragon Prince that this reminds you of? I'll read it one
1: more time for you.
0: Yeah. Welcome back.
1: I hope you had a pleasant trip. Yeah, I guess the, the thing that kind of comes to my mind is uh, I mentioned towards the beginning of, you know, when I was really young, my mom uh, was diagnosed with some pretty serious uh, chronic uh, illness um, stuff. And uh, that that was a really hard time for me. And I was real active in church, and, and I remember thinking that and, and in my interactions with a lot of people in the church of, of feeling like like a sense of over-optimism, over-sentimentality towards it. Um, you know, you hear a lot of things, oh, don't worry, you know, God is in control, or God's going to get this okay, you know, make this okay, and everything's going to be all right, and there's always hope. And, and a lot of times it, it it made me feel a little like Viren did, you know, like, ugh, you know, just eye roll. And, and and kind of thinking, oh, well, they just don't really understand the gravity of this situation of, of how I feel and just like how this, you know, serious this, this is. Um, I mean, I had a whole life planned and, and you know, that's probably a problem on my end, you know, planning your life up to, you know, adulthood when you're like 13. But, you know, I had this whole idea of where I was going. And, and a lot of my mom's sickness, um, especially as the years kind of unfolded, Uh, was directly a part of those plans kind of changing. And so I was very much feeling this sense of, like, no direction um, and feeling like I was at rock bottom and and definitely at times could see myself uh, approaching that sort of darkness that Fearne had in the sense that I wasn't, you know, holding on to a hope that everything was going to be better. And and thankfully I did, and and to this day I've become just... (laughs) I'm oftentimes just blown away with how, you know, wrong I was in terms of how my life would be now, Um, thinking it was going to be, you know, just awful uh, if it didn't meet the plans I had. Um, and, And it wasn't until I embraced that sort of optimism and that sort of hope that even though I couldn't see it, you know, telling myself it's there, that I was actually able to see, yeah, you know, there, there is actually hope in all this. Um, and, 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 so for, for me, uh, seeing all these grins telling me that at the same, even though at the time I didn't, you know, necessarily accept what they were saying and kind of roll my eyes, what they were saying, you know, it, it did give me a sense of, of feeling like, okay, well maybe there is like, maybe this isn't as bad as it is going to get, you know, maybe there is some a light down the end of the tunnel and, and so that, that, that's kind of what I, what I come up with. That was honestly a, a perfect
0: segment, a segue into kind of step three. And so step, step two is this allegory uh, in terms of going into other moments in, um, in like other works, right? And then step three is how does this, ref, how do we reflect on this in our own lives? And what you just gave was just a perfect example of that, of that, what that optimism can do. Right, especially when it's not considering the circumstances of the person that we're speaking to. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and I and I think there's a sense in like you know, Grin is aware of the situation. He he understands the the gravity of his situation, even though Viren you know probably doesn't think he does. Uh, I, I, it's just kind of like yeah, I'm hanging here and. It looks like there's no hope, but I could either just sit here and just continue to plunge into darkness and and hopelessness. Or I can hold on to, you know, something that can, you know, give me some sense of of hope um, that I'll get out of here. Uh, Because if I don't have that hope, then I definitely won't get out of here. You
0: know what this reminds me of in my life? Um, Many of our listeners know who Sunshine is. He's my co-host for the main segment of the podcast. And Sunshine is a really interesting person because he often will say things that like if I said them it would come across as really sarcastic but when he says them like he he says them and I'm like are you being sarcastic and he's like and he he almost always will like three seconds later be like I'm I'm not being sarcastic I meant that (laughs) um and that's kind of what this reminds me of he's like sometimes he'll say things that like clearly I'm having like a Day. He's like, I hope you have the great rest of your day. And, and like I'm like, <laughs> and I give him a look and he's like, no, 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 I actually meant that. I hope you do like and it's like because it's always comes across at really interesting times. And when like I'm just like, I can't tell if he's being sarcastic or not. And that's kind of where I am here. It's like mm-hmm. if I were living in Viran's shoes at this moment, I'd be like, how can you possibly see me, see my face, see how I'm feeling right now, and then say that to me. Yeah. But at the same time, it really makes me feel a little bit more gracious, uh, like, right? Because I also honestly believe that Grin means this fully, <laughs> Like, right? And so at the same time, I'm like, okay, but like, is it me who needs to change here? Or or is it Grin? Mm-hmm. And in my mind, it's it's me because I'm the one who's receiving this and being like, you there's no way you're being serious or like read the room or like but mm-hmm. that's it's me who's having that that reaction it's not like grin is being nice <laughs> and, I'm, right. and i am judging his niceness <laughs> mm-hmm. and so and i feel that i feel like i've done that before with with sunshine and so i'm i'm, I'm kind of grappling with that and like i'm like oh near maybe i need got to <laughs> gotta check myself before i wreck myself a little bit what else? Anything else for for step three? Any other wife uh, things that this reminds us mm. of? I'll, I'll read it one more time. Welcome back. I hope you had a pleasant trip.
1: Kind of as you, you last talked, it kind of th- thought of beer and a little bit more. So this may be a little, you know, outside of the scope. But yeah, no worries. For me, another thing that I think about is, is being vulnerable is something that I've always like really wanted you know, just based on my personality, you know, like I'm a very, I'm an Enneagram four for any Enneagram fans, you know, out there. And there is this desire in me to be uh, super uh, emotionally connected with people and to be able to show people your true self. Um, And there's a, but a lot of times because of how people responded to me and how the world would respond to that and, and abuse it a lot of times, uh it kind of creates the shell around you and and, and it did for me specifically and i can't help but you know when hearing you know how grins talking to him and how viren must be feeling in response i think viren's big thing is a fear of vulnerability mm-hmm. and i think that's a big theme throughout the the dragon prince is this sort of you know uh fear of a vulnerability because the world is a bad place it's only going to hurt you it's only going to um
0: they're going to kill you exactly
1: you know and and there's a sense in where grin is showing a bit of vulnerability in his optimism you know oh Oh, that's so true you know and like viran just can't comprehend that because for him you know you have to be strong you know you have to be powerful you have to dominate your environment in order to have true strength you know and anything outside of that is weakness I think he I I just you know it's it's very uh hard you have to read into it very deeply and and think about the whole context but there's a sense in where I think Viren you know is feeling that way and as as Grin is responding to him you know of like wow that's a very weak vulnerable way of looking at things you know but we know watching that that's actually where the strength is um and it's kind of why Viren's downfall kind of continues, you know? Why he uh, becomes so much uh, darker as is the season goes uh, progresses?
0: Yeah, man, that was really a light bulb went off for me. I was like, oh goodness, being positive is vulnerable. I was like, oh no, that's why I'm so negative all the time. I'm like, oh no, that's it is, why yeah. I'm so critical. That's I was like, oh, I, that just went down a rabbit hole. That was like, <laughs> oh dear, um, oof, okay. All right. Well, I'm here yeah. to blow your mind, Ben. Yeah, well, thank, <laughs> thanks for, for flipping that switch. I feel it worse <laughs> now. Um, it's good. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. I'll beat uh, <laughs> my feelings. It'll be great. Um, okay. So this kind of is a, a good segue again to, to step four. Step four is this this fourth rung on the ladder where we're climbing deeper and deeper into the text is... What is an an action step that this uh, experience that going through this this process has led us to? What's something that you want to change or do uh, based off of this conversation? And that's kind of like the goal is of step four.
1: And so what what are your thoughts? I mentioned the idea of like practice, you know, practicing hope. And also the idea of vulnerability, and, I, and I, for me, those are the two things I'm taking out of that. as kind of like concrete actions that to you know truly uh, have hope and to truly be able to you know have optimism in light of horrible things and uh, happening, um, and and the world not working out, you know, or not acting in, in accordance with how we expect. Um, that it requires both. An act of vulnerability. So, an act of surrender of, you know, there is strength still in being optimistic. And it requires me to sort of let go of my desire to, you know, uh, dominate uh, my environment and, and sort of try to find and sort of try to control, you know, um, the things around me. And then it requires a sort of practice, a daily practice, I would argue, of telling yourself, hey, see myself as chained down, I'm actually chained up, you know, that's something that that's sort of a a practice you have to do in order to uh, create this real optimism, even if you don't necessarily feel it for yourself Mm -hmm. in the moment, you know, Um, hope isn't just a feeling, it is a reality you have to live into. Um, And it requires a sort of uh, emptying of oneself and and a vulnerability uh, to experience that and I, and for me that's kind of like I guess a- ethical application I get from this you know mm. is that it, to do anything really um to li- live any sort of uh life uh that is uh seeking to uh seeking union with the divine requires yeah. that dual act of vulnerability and daily practice you know mm. um and and I would argue response to you know what the grace that we are shown every day if we just look yeah wow no that's beautiful oh okay I, I think what i i heard
0: from you that really spoke out the most was the idea that this is a practice this isn't something mm-hmm. you just start like you just oh i'm optimistic now i'm gonna do it <laughs> i'm gonna right. be vulnerable now it's like it's a it's a practice that, mm-hmm. that must be. um practiced. <laughs> um it's not something that just happens. It's something that must become. Mm-hmm. Um so yeah, okay. For for me, I'll read it one more time just so everybody can have a, a good grap- grasp on what yeah. we're going with. Welcome back. I hope you had a pleasant trip. As I grapple with an action step that this conversation is kind of guiding me to, I, I'm kind of really feeling this need to when I am in negative Nancy mode, and how, what is what's a, a flag that can I that can like help my self awareness catch to be like, is this how I want to engage with the world? Um, and so because like, and I and I wonder if the filter is, do I want to be a Verin or a grin here? Do I want to be a? <laughs> um, and and it's one of those things where I I, I think my default is to be a Verin. And I would like for my default to be closer on the spectrum to grin than it is now. And I think I'm, I'm hearing you and I'm feeling similarly in the sense that I, I want to start practicing what it would be like to become aware of, nope, I'm that was a negative response. And by negative, I'm not necessarily meaning it is bad. I'm saying that it is judgmental or... Um, critical or uh, unnecessarily critical or judgmental of the world. Um, That's kind of where I'm coming from when I say negative. So how do I confront that and be like, oh, be aware. And I think that's the first step. I don't want to jump too far and say, I want to get to this point. I want to say my action step is to cultivate awareness around my judgment and my, my critical like critical thinking because sometimes I think it's too critical and I just want to become a little bit more on sliding that scale and I think the first step to do that is to cultivate a little bit more awareness around that Mm -hmm. so just pausing and thinking a little bit more um, as I begin to experience a, a response oh man well That was our experience with Lectio Divina. That was one of our practices that we got to do today. Uh, We are gonna come back and do another. So stay tuned, here's some music for you and we'll be right back. And good. I don't know why I'm talking like this. All right. Here we go. So we're back, and Trevor is still with us. And thankfully, because we are about to dive into some Ignatian spirituality practice with the Dragon Prince. And we have done this before, but not with the Dragon Prince. We've done this with a few of our avatar episodes, but I'm excited because Trevor, you are somewhat of a this is somewhat of your your niche. Uh, Expertise here. So, I would love to um, get your help in explaining this next segment. What we're doing is um, we're calling it Sacred Imagination. Uh, But can you kind of give us some insight into Ignatian spirituality and maybe a little bit about its origins?
1: And then uh, we'll kind of dive into how we'll adapt that to the Dragon Prince. Absolutely. Yeah. So, I um, actually went to undergrad at a Jesuit college. So I know I'm going to say something, and all my Jesuit professors are going to like, "How dare you misrepresent Jesuit spirituality?" So I apologize in advance. But I hope they're all listening. listening <laughs> you're there, all listening to this podcast, I'm sure. <laughs> but um, from what I was told and kind of my encounters with it, is it goes back to Saint Ignatius of Loyola, who, uh, for those who don't know, was like a, a Spanish noble um, who was a military uh, leader, kind of officer. Uh, was very, you know, um, lived his life of pleasure, you know, was all about the glory, achieving the honor of battle. Um, and he actually fought, I can't remember which war it was, one of those in like the, the 1400s or whatnot. Um, and he basically got his leg blowed up by a, a cannonball uh so not very fun actually like caused him like he had like i think he had to like have a cane and at least had like a limp for the rest of his life but he was actually recovering over i think it was a monastery or like a nunnery Mm. in spain and you know here he is unable to move and all he had was the scriptures and the stories of the saints and what like ignatius uh started to do because what else are you going to do when you have a broke leg and in like 15th century healthcare system, uh, (laughs) but lay on the bed and read about these uh, 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 stories of Jesus and about the saints who came after. And what he started to do is imagine himself in those situations, you know, being with the disciples, what would it, what, what would it be like to encounter Jesus? What would it be like to uh, live these lives of the saints and as he did that, he kind of had a gradual uh, kind of conversion experience. You know, he, he decided from that he wanted to give his life to God. He wanted what he saw as a life of glory and honor through military conquest. He now saw a, a new narrative in the, the scripture and the story and the traditions of the church, which was about, uh, you know, glory through honor to God, through love of neighbor, through a union with Christ's example. And so the act of Ignatian of spirituality is just that, it's about becoming united in the reality of Jesus, the incarnation, uh, which is about not just, you know, bringing your mind to it, you know, but is about bringing your whole soul, bringing your body uh, where we live out that new reality. Um, And it's all this holistic uh, integrated idea of spirituality that you're bringing your whole self into these narratives. Um, and so when, when we engage in ancient spirituality, it's all with this, uh, idea of becoming united with the divine, you know, Mm. and not just, you know, intellectually or even just spiritually, but spirituality in in the sense of our whole selves, which actually puts us out into the world and be able to live into that new reality that, you know, in scriptures, especially, and in the person of Christ, um, you know uh, Jesuits and Ignatians and, and Catholics and you know Christians tend to see as the summation of you know what is reality, which is you know the incarnation um, yeah. and and ultimately the Trinity too. Um, so I apologize to my uh, Jesuit professors if I left out key uh, you know aspects of that. I'm sorry. You know I did. I, yeah, so <laughs> there nice, you go. Feel no free to comment any any additions or subtractions to what I said.
0: Yeah, I, I think that I just want to I want to lift up this concept of embodiment. Right, we mm-hmm. we are kind of getting our whole self, and that's something that you kind of said a few times. But it's getting our physical bodies ingrained, and then becoming aware of how our bodies respond to mm-hmm. what we're imagining as well. So when we what we're gonna do and how we're gonna adapt to this. To practice it with the Dragon Prince is we're going to uh, listen to a 30 second clip of the Dragon Prince that we kind of we have already selected for us. And what we're going to do is we're going to imagine ourselves into this scene. And when you imagine yourself into the scene, you can imagine yourself as a third party member. You can just be like a fly on the wall, a person who's present and listening. You can imagine yourself into one of the characters that is speaking you can imagine yourself into someone who is not present, but how, uh, like another character that if they did overhear this conversation, how they might experience it. And when we imagine, I want us to be keenly aware of not only what our brain is doing, but also how is our body reacting? What are our senses telling us? What am I, am I getting hot? Am I getting cold? Is my breath speeding up? How is my, am I tasting something, smelling something? What are, what is everything that is happening with our body? And so it's cultivating awareness around that so that we might become a little bit more informed. And so I'm going to both Trevor and I are going to imagine ourselves into the scene and we're going to reflect on our experience, and then we hope that you're doing the same at home. And so in order to prepare you that I'm going to go ahead and give you uh, a little bit of a rundown this is a scene from episode one where Callum is talking to Lujain about magic, and so I just wanted to invite you into that if you want to you can. Find a place, if you're listening in the car, Uh, I don't recommend doing this, but uh, everybody else, and if you're in a safe place to do so, I recommend closing your eyes, taking a deep breath, and then imagining yourself into this scene. I love this. I love learning about magic, but I want you to teach
1: me to do some moon magic. You know, maybe some hands-on learning. We get in there, you show me how to do a moonbeam, a moon-ray, a moon-shine. Humans can't do magic. Um, but
0: I did do magic. Right. With a primal stone. But then, you smashed it, so now you're just a standard human again. Ah, but look on the bright side. You've got those extra fingers. The little ones. What do you call them? Pinkos but i know other humans who do magic
1: we do not call that practice magic
0: give yourself a minute to come out of that experience stay tuned with your body what did you notice all right so trevor we're gonna start with you i kind of want to just get a sense of who first did you imagine yourself as were you a fly on the wall were you a character and then kind of tell us a little bit about your experience uh imagining yourself into this scene mm-hmm.
1: yeah so I think it just kind of by default I lead more towards uh I, I really uh empathize with with Callum just because his experience I really relate to and and especially here because you know Callum just discovered that he could do all these cool things, having grown up thinking he couldn't really do a whole lot. He couldn't do fighting. He couldn't do the chivalrous things that was kind of expected of him uh, as the, s- s- well, I guess, stepson of the king, but in, in the court no matter, or uh, in the court regardless. And I, that actually, like, really... Resonated with me because growing up in a place where it was all sports, football, um, making really good grades, uh, all these different kind of extracurricular things that you, you're supposed to, like, subscribe to to be successful and to be, um, like, of worth, I, I wasn't really good at any of those. And, and a lot of that plays in my ADHD and, and also my <laughs> unathletic um, ness. But kind of like Callum, he, he discovers this uh, new way of being able to be in the world and, and found something he could do well at and is excited about that. Um, and for me, that, that was a lot of actually how my interest in like theology and spirituality, um, what that kind of gave me. I was real active with church things. Uh, I was starting to read a lot and actually understanding it. Like I felt smart. For the first time, uh, as someone who didn't make the best grades in school because of you know ADHD, and uh, who who felt productive doing this, and just kind of like how Callum was, it, it made me feel like a sense of control. And so I'm real excited, I'm wanting to do do this, do that, do that, uh, do this with my newfound gift uh, of of theology and and being in church. But the issue was is that I was using it more for myself and my uh, myself feeling of worth which to an extent I think spirituality does but it was more of just like a tool for me to prop myself up and I think that's kind of what Callum in this scene is struggling with and I just really really resonated with that because as we kind of see this ends up being kind of an issue for Callum Um, and ultimately a little bit of a, a Thing that could potentially lead him to using dark, ma- dark magic. Um, and, and I uh, uh, can see spirituality in the same way in theology. Like it's cool and everything, and I, I'm good at it, but it doesn't matter if I'm using it for the wrong reasons. I'm not using it to build others up, to build the kingdom of God uh, in, in terms of my specific tradition, not to just build up myself. So yeah, that's, that's kind of where, where my mind uh, went uh, listening to that. Yeah,
0: I I just, I'm, it's so cool that, you know, 30 seconds can inspire what you just said, right? (laughs) And like thinking about it in a new way and a different way can inspire that kind of thought. And I think that's why these practices are so cool. So I want to tell you about how I imagine myself into it. And then I want to get your feedback because I, I think that, are I because I I flitted between both Callum and Lujane um and I was Lujane at first because Callum was like I'm super happy I I this is like I'm I'm like giddy that I'm gonna be able to do this and then Lujane's like no no (laughs) um and there there's this phrase that she utters that I like I felt because we just came off of this conversation talking about Grin and Viren where I was, I think Lujan in this moment is channeling that Viren energy, if you will. I'm putting up air quotes of that that judgmental, critical, like, "Nope, this isn't possible." Um, whereas Callum's living in this like open, imaginary, vulnerable place, and she shuts him down. She's like, "No, no, you're still a standard. You're just a standard human, but you have some pinkos, which is like that <laughs> that optimate, that like false optimism, if right. you will." Know, right. All right. And I, I was sitting there going like, oh God, that's me. And I was like, that's, that's something I do. And so in my body, I was like a little crestfallen. I felt like a little tension in my chest there because I was like, oh no, <laughs> <laughs> like the, my awareness is turning on. I guess it's a step in the like process, right? It's like, oh, mm-hmm. uh, that's, that is potentially a way that I have responded before. <laughs> uh, right So can I ask you this? When you heard that as, as while you were experiencing Callum there, Um, when when Lujain said you know you're just a standard human how did your body react what did you what did
1: you experience especially coming from protestant circles you know they're real big into the idea of this total depravity you know that like there is something exactly (laughs) that there's something inherently wrong with you but thank god for jesus because he can overlook all that you know and hey you still got you know you got pinkos, you know, and, and uh, there's still some cool things, but you still, there's still something inherently flawed with you. Um, And I understand, you know, there's a sense where we understand why that's sort of the assumption made by like, you know, Zadians, you know, because humans haven't really demonstrated otherwise, and they have demonstrated a lack of magic and a, uh, a disconnection from imagine that of like well this must just be the reality just as much as a reality is like war and conflict is and so i think a lot of times when we we try use this idea of like everybody's a sinner you know oh we're, we're <laughs> depraved and stuff and, and in a sense it, it and and i know people that have like the best intentions and i do believe humanity you know often chooses wrong a lot and gives every reason to make us make people think that there is no hope you know yeah but at the same time when you limit people within those you know identities that like you're inherently flawed and nothing you can do will change that then you sort of limit the inherent goodness in that person because you know christians still believe we're made an image of god you know which implies that we have we were made to be good and we also do with Callum that he's eventually able to do magic, which just kind of like threw that theory out of the out of the window. You know that humans can't do magic, yeah. and it was all because he refused to let that narrative that you know my humanity cons- is even though it you know is flawed in a sense doesn't have to define my future. Yeah. You know, and when you limit it to this inheritance of depravity, you don't allow for that chance to. To grow and to be uh, remade and brought closer to our original true nature. Yeah. You know, which is ultimately what we are, is we are made good. Hear, here. Yeah, y'all, that was a a full like
0: segment there on 30 seconds of audio, right? And so isn't this a neat little experiment that we get to try and, and learn from just a short portion? I think that's super neat. I, I want to invite our listeners, if this was an exercise that was um, that you kind of practiced at home. Feel free to send us a voicemail of your experience uh, to thearchivee at gmail.com. We would love to, to get a voicemail and, and listen to it and potentially share it on the podcast if, if you'd let us. Just a, just a thought, putting that out there. You can also find us on, we haven't talked about this yet, but like, you know, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, all the things, BNB underscore pod. Uh, join us, come, come and see what we're like join our Facebook group, talk about it, you know, all the things. Okay, 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 okay. Um, So that kind of brings us to a close on our second practice. I think we'll do one more, and we'll be back with that uh, in a few seconds. Welcome back to our final spiritual practice for this episode. You'll note that this is a little bit of a longer episode, but we just couldn't get away. We wanted to make sure we got uh, these three practices in because they're all so rich and full. And I wanted to take advantage of Trevor's time, but, you know, maybe we will come back. We'll see. Uh, So what we're going to do this time for our third practice uh, for the episode is called Florilegium. And florilegium is a neat little practice where what we're doing is a florilegia is essentially like these are the the flowers that are blooming from the text, these are like little sparklets that spoke to us. And um, a lot of times we keep uh, favorite quotes and things like that. And this is just a way of viewing them as what if these quotes are, are sacred in and of themselves? What if these little sparklets could give us more? And the way we kind of go about this practice is i have my sparklets trevor has his sparklets and then you all as listeners have your own sparklets and theoretically what happens is when we put them in conversation with one another we get something new and something that we can learn and grow from Uh, and it's a nice little piece of fruit that we can pick Uh, so we're gonna we're gonna try it how's that sound trevor
1: I am excited. I've never done this practice before, but I'm excited and just got to do it with my good friend, Ben. Sweet. So theoretically, we have both come
0: with a, a quote. So do you mind sharing what quote you
1: have chosen so that we can kind of grapple with that? Yeah, so my quote is from, is from uh, the, the king in episode five of season two. Um, and it goes, we will share whatever we have with them and we will share in their suffering. Ooh, that's a lot. That's already a lot
0: there. We yeah, all- no- nothing heavy or anything. <laughs> yeah, we could, we could do a lot with that one alone. Okay. All right. Okay. All right. All right. So mine is, uh, from episode four and it's from Callum right at the very beginning. Uh, he says, what? No way. I am extremely attuned to slight changes in the airflow. So what we have are two of these uh, wonderful sparklets that we've pulled from the text. And what I want to do now is, before we kind of give our reasons for why this spoke to us, why they sparkled in such a way, I want to go into the first iteration of the practice, which is where we read them sequentially and see how they relate to one another. And then after that, we'll kind of parse out why we chose them, why they stuck out to us. And then we will flip the quotes and see in a new way and see if it shines differently. So I'm gonna read both of these quotes together. And so Trevor, as you hear these, I want you to imagine them in conversation with one another. Here we go. We will share whatever we have with them, and we will share in their suffering. What? No way. I'm extremely attuned to slight changes in the airflow. So as you hear those in conversation with
1: one another, what, what comes to mind? What, what is it What is it saying to you? It actually kind of, uh, for me, ties to a lot of the, the context of the, the first part of the quote scene that it was made, because it seems like he's like, in the same way that a little bit that like Viren was saying, um, in response of like, no, we don't need to share in suffering, you know. Yeah. Look, yeah. I can do this, I have this skill, you know, I'm extremely attuned to these slight changes in airflow, yeah. which things imply, hey, we can do this instead, you know. Um, but as we kind of learn from that whole situation that that, is, you know, that that sort of mentality is kind of what causes, you know, so many problems to to happen, even though they do find a kind of a loophole to fix the situation of the, the starving citizens, Mm. um, by basically, you know, taking that lava monster's heart, um, that they, there was extreme loss from that, you know, and it's definitely, uh, illustrated as not being, having been the, you know, ideal way, just because you can do something doesn't necessarily mean you should, and sometimes, even if you have the ability to do something, doesn't mean the cost of it you know, is worth doing, you know. I do, yeah, that's, yes, yeah. It's interesting to me how,
0: what universal that, that response is. What, no way, I'm extremely attuned to slight changes in the airflow. It's like, oh, 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 you are, <laughs> because immediately they fall out of the sky, right? It's one of those things where I just, it's one of those things, like, I just, anytime someone claims to just know something whether and and anytime certainty and we kind of touched on this earlier but anytime certainty comes into play it feels like the phrase pride cometh before the fall comes to comes to mind right and and fall literally in this case but it's one of those things where when we appear certain we are going to eat our words right and it's interesting because I feel like why is our gut response to respond with certainty? Like, can you help me illuminate that? Oh, like, I don't understand why. Like, I get it intellectually. Let's be mm-hmm. like, I understand why we well, why we crave certainty. Because mm-hmm. wouldn't it be nice if things could be certain? But at the same time, like, why is that our response when, like, ninety nine percent of the time we're wrong? Yeah. <laughs>
1: I mean, I think it's about control, you know, it gives us a sense of control over our own lives versus saying I may or may not die today. Like I may or may not know what's really going on in the world. Yeah. Uh, that's a scary thought. And, and kind of tied into vulnerability, it requires a sort of vulnerability to it, yeah. you know, to say, I don't know what's going on. And you lose that sense of control that you had over your own life Um, over the, the understanding we have of the universe. uh, It gives us a, 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 it gives us a sense of like, we can, can, we, we can rationalize what's happening. And at the very least we can understand it. And that makes me feel more comfortable about what the universe is, is like when, you know, in reality, (laughs) we can't know what's going on and really we're pretty insignificant when it comes to the vastness of life and the cosmos, yeah. you know, and, and that's a scary thought for a lot of yeah. people. Terrifying. Oh, okay.
0: So that, this has kind of been our, our first orientation of these two quotes together. Uh, before we dive into our second orientation where we flip them, I would love to kind of get a sense of like, why did this sparkle? Why did your quote sparkle to you? What about it called you to,
1: to write it down? Yeah. To me, it seemed like a very, especially for like King Harrow, um, seemed like a very relevant response to even contemporary issues today. Yeah. You know, like so often we want to solve problems by force or some creative intellectual loophole, which sometimes can work, but you know, a lot of times there are only so much you can control. There's, and you know, I think like people in AA get this, because it's the idea of like you know when they say the serenity prayer, help me uh, accept the things uh, I can't control and change the things I can. Or you know I'm butchering the quote, but yeah. there's a sense you know where that that is true. But at the same time, even if you can't control something, doesn't mean you can do nothing. You know it's not just being like oh well we can't fix this we can't do anything we're we're powerless in this situation. There is a sense in where, like at least we can share in the suffering. Yeah. And I think sometimes that's the best response to things. If someone's going to su- suffer and we can't do anything about it, well, let's at least stand in solidarity with them. Yeah. No, that makes total sense. I appreciate that a lot. Okay. So
0: for me, uh, my quote, I, it stuck out to me. I was, I went through a, a, a quick run on. They were all, I went through the whole season this morning and it was on in the background while I was doing other things. And, I I just I paused when Callum said this because I was like, uh, like it's like, dude, you didn't need to do that. Like <laughs> so this is right. He comes out, he's like, Rayla's poking fun at them because he's meditating on the sky arcanum and because they're flying in the air. He's like, I can do this. I'm gonna become attuned. And he's like, I already am attuned. And then they fall out of the sky. And it's just like, dude, like. I, I think often when we're chasing something that we really truly want, we, we don't give ourselves the grace and the, the mercy is the word that's coming to mind, but like, we, we don't allow ourselves to, to take baby steps when we're learning something new. Like when, I, oh, I want to learn how to play the piano. And then like students will come to a lesson and be like, I want to play this. And I'm like, you can't play that for like another year mm-hmm. like like it's one of those things where like you have to learn the basics before you can jump to the the big stuff and, mm-hmm. I, and I think that often we have this presumption you know what this is actually reminding me of it's reminding me of Zuko in episode one of Avatar the Last Airbender where he's mm-hmm. talking to Iroh and Iroh is saying or no, Zuko's like, teach me the next form, and Iroh's like, no, (laughs) and he's like, (laughs) you will teach me the next form, and he's like, all right, after I finish my food, but it's one of those things where, like, it's this presumption that we know what's best for us when we don't, we, like, and it's, and it's, like, I just, we, we crave, and we believe, and we, like, Mm -hmm. we know so hard, and it turns out we, we knew something that was totally wrong, and that's just, that's what this quote reminded me of that feeling and I know (laughs) pun intended that you know I've experienced that many a time and I know that I'll experience it again but again it's just working working with that so
1: I just I found it to be a really universal moment and very uh, apt that's why I picked mine yeah well and that's a really interesting insight too because especially as like living in Western capitalist culture, where it's all about pull yourself up the bootstraps, bootstraps yeah. be all you can, do this, <laughs> do that, and you will be successful and finally be of worth. That's a, a narrative that a lot of us are ingrained to. So I think, yeah, I, I, I love that uh, uh, reasoning behind that that quote. Yeah.
0: Okay. So what we've done now is we've got a sense of why we picked them And now we know why the other person picked them, right? And so as we re-flip these quotes on their heads, we might get a different meaning by putting them together in a new way. So let's engage here. I'll read it for us. What? No way. I'm extremely attuned to slight changes in the airflow. We will share whatever we have with them, and we will share in their suffering. As you've kind of grappled with these new quotes and this new orientation. Is there anything new that is coming to you uh, by hearing the quotes in this way? And I can go first because I have something that's that came up really quickly. Yeah, go for it, please. <laughs> so for for me, one of the things that I, I really I'm you've mentioned vulnerability a few times in our conversation, and what I'm noticing is a very like very dichotomous. There's a <laughs> binary between these two in terms of the amount of vulnerability one is saying nope i'm invulnerable and the other is saying we will choose vulnerability Mm. and i I think that is the stark difference especially based off what you were saying and why you picked it that's that's what jumped out to me um, in this orientation it's like no 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 vulnerability and the other one's like Mm, no nope we're going to choose vulnerability. Like we're like, this mm-hmm. is the lesson we're going to do it. And it's going to be hard. <laughs> and it's like, yeah. um, and, and, and that's what it is. It's exactly what it's saying. We'll choose whatever we will share, whatever we have with them and we will share in their suffering. And to, so to choose suffering is to say, listen, I'm, I'm going to be vulnerable here. And I would like to think that that would be my response. And I know that it, it would not be my gut reaction. Mm. Um, and so uh, that's that's kind of what came to my mind as I as I grappled with this new orientation. How about you? Has
1: anything come up that is that is new for you? Absolutely actually, yeah. And kind of as you were saying, I, I started to see it this way. And I, and I don't know how, how much is connected with what you said, but you know, I looked at the how the first line I noticed, you know, where it's saying, I am extremely attuned to slight changes in the airflow. And then Harrow's quote comes in, we will share whatever we have with them and we will share in their suffering. And so it has this view, this this, uh, assumption of like at the beginning, I have to be the one to do this. You know, It's all about me. But Harrow's response with that quote, it reframes it from the I to the we. And I will say that that's one thing that some forms of spirituality, regardless of denomination or religion, I think have a struggle with is like turning it into just about me. Yeah. You know, and not seeing that once we find how we ourselves are connected to the divine, how we are connected to one another, because ultimately that's d- divinity in every person and every aspect of creation. And especially, you know, I mentioned like our Western capitalist uh, culture, where you can go and buy like a, a spirituality book at like the Walgreens, you know, as if it's <laughs> another, you know, as if it's just another thing to consume, you know, and and adapt according to your life for your own individual, you know, spirituality. You sort of miss the point of spirituality in the sense it's supposed to bring us closer together, you know, and it's yeah, supposed to redefine what uh who we are and how we are bound to one another you know i love the i've been i watched dr strange recently you know the marvel movie yeah yeah and I, I, and I was really blown away by this moment whenever the you know the master i forgot who the master was but dr strange's master is like dying and she talked about like his problem and how he was so obsessed with his success and his self you know and his ambition and, and how that even translates a little into his magic And she's like, and you forgot the most important thing. And he's like, what? She's like, it's not about you. And that sort of realization is the point I think that spirituality is supposed to do. It's not just about you. It's about all of this and what you can do to be a part of that. Um, So yeah, that's where my mind went. (laughs) No, I think that's really important, right? Is how do we focus
0: on like, cause uh, we are constantly focused on what about me? What is my purpose? Mm-hmm. What is my, what is my, what is my, and it's, it's like, we need to venture down that path mm-hmm. in order to understand how we fit into the we.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So if we just stop at the me and the my and the I, we, that's only part of the journey, right? We have to continue and expand past that into a collective Mm-hmm. to see and i love how you phrased it it's it's seeing i think you said it's seeing god in every human but also every aspect of creation mm-hmm. right it's not just in humanity god exactly. is everywhere right yeah. um, and i think that's a really integral piece to to experiencing the world and i won't go off on a tangent but i like i wrote a paper for one of my final papers was on seeing the image of God, not just in humanity, but also everywhere else and in, in animals and in the earth and in the creation. And I think that that's um, kind of integral to
1: treating everything with dignity and living. Yeah. Well, and, and we see this with, with Callum towards the end of the season when he um, has that realization about the primal stone and he says uh, to Rayla, this isn't something I realize that the primal stone isn't something that I hold it's something that I'm in and, and kind of talks this idea that, that the spirituality uh, around him uh, is not something that he can harness and, and use and control for his own gains, but is actually something that he's a part of. And is like a state of being that connects him with every living thing in the world. I'm really loving this, this metaphor that I'm, I'm like, it's
0: still tenuous at best, but I'm really grappling with this idea of magic being a, like, what if magic was a metaphor for spirituality and dark, mm. dark magic is this capitalistic version mm. of, of religion whereas the primal magic is like seeing ourselves as a part of a collective whole exactly mm. right
1: oh i just got chills
0: Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh.
1: <laughs> um, that's okay. no, that you that you the chills mean you got something right. That means you got something right.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's uh, dang. Oh man, I wish I'd like intended that, but it just kind of <laughs> happened. Dang. Okay, but okay, this is why we do this, right? We're we're getting inklings and and pictures and images of of what spirituality and how we fit into it really is. And so this has been a practice in Floralegia. So thanks for indulging me as we um, engage with these various practices. Absolutely. All right, uh, that was our, our final practice for the episode. But what we're gonna do now is venture forth into another little musical interlude and we'll come on back with our lens MVP for the whole season. And then uh, some gratitude that we'll share as well. And for the Lens MVP, uh, we're going to decide on what that lens will be very shortly, but you'll hear when we come back. segment for our episode on all of our spiritual practices for book two of the dragon prince we are excited because what we're about to dive into is what we've been doing for the whole season which is the lens mvp and then doing some gratitude because gratitude is great so trevor if you were to put a put a word to maybe our whole conversation or to like uh, uh, something that like spoke to you from all of book two mm-hmm. what's a what's a lens that or a word or a, an idea that spoke to you that jumped out at you from the entire season is there anything that speaks out we've seen a lot
1: but I, I see vulnerability mm. you know it was a big I love it you know and and so much of it can be looked through that you know I, I interpret a lot of it as I'm thinking about it through that lens you know in terms of like what is you know, healthy and what is unhealthy for the characters. I love it. Let's let's do
0: it. Let's grapple with that. All right, sounds good. If we, if we were to pick one character then, and you're going to nominate someone and I'm going to nominate someone, who has been the most vulnerable or who has uh, taught vulnerability best or who has in your mind engaged with vulnerability the best
1: mm-hmm. uh, in terms of your MVP, So I'm gonna go and say, I think Ezrin for this because you know, like in terms of who is the most consistently one, he's a child, you know, which I think is the some of the point that like a child is able to to uh, embrace more vulnerability uh, and still be uh, illustrated as in a lot of ways stronger than the adults and doing a lot more, being more king like even. and even and especially like whenever he hears the news of his father's death, he feels for it, you know. And obviously, he, um, you know, is upset. But because he's vulnerable and understands, has this new understanding of what the world is supposed to be, you know, uh, and and has these values of love and forgiveness, and and this this relationship with Zim that he has and how he's able to look at the world through the lens of those relationships, that he's able to understand that, hey, I'm the king now. I uh, have a responsibility. And that's a very mature thing. And the fact that he's shown as so much more mature, but vulnerable, because he's also a kid, having fun with Zim, very emotional, um, able to really uh, eva- uh, be on a really deep, intimate, uh, personal level with his friends. Uh, just shows just how powerful that vulnerability is yeah. um, and how he's able to uh, be the ideal king because of it. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I I also, what
0: comes to mind is there's this moment where Callum tries to tell him about Harrow earlier on and he then goes on this, admission of like, I know the world's counting on me. I can't train Zim how to fly. And then he just like, he, he just is so willing and able to share what is on his, what his burden is that other mm-hmm. people, as we, I think as we age, uh, we tend to do less and less. And I say that very generally, some people are phenomenal at it, but I think culture has cultivated a, a situation where that becomes less and less possible. And, he just does it so well. And it's just so admirable. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I think that's a, a fine nomination. <laughs> I, I'm, I think that's an excellent choice. So I'm going to go in a different direction. I'm going to go in a different direction and I'm bear with me here. I'm going to pick Soren. Okay.
1: Okay. I, I can. Okay. I'm interested uh, to hear. Yeah. Uh, Cause uh, I think I might I, agree. I, <laughs>
0: okay. All right. So, uh, there's, a, there's a saying that if you do not, uh, v- vulnerability is going to guide your actions and decisions whether you like it or not, and it is one of those things where either you are going to choose vulnerability and you are going to act in according to with your vulnerable feelings or vulnerability is going to force you to do things that you do not want to do. And Soren for the first half of this season is letting vulnerability guide. like he is of his avoidance of vulnerability is guiding his actions, mm-hmm. right? Because he does not want to kill the princes. He's mm-hmm. actively uninterested in doing it because he's feeling this burden of pleasing his father. And he is so enmeshed in not letting that hurt him that he is letting vulnerability guide his actions in a way that he probably wouldn't want them to go and then this moment where he is lying on this bed and he is paralyzed and I just got chills again he is talking to Claudia and he admits and tells her what Viren asked him to do and Claudia is like Nope, not true. You're lying, and like, like, like goes on, like has a little bit of a a, a freakout, and she ends up getting tossed out of the building. Um, but but Soren just feels so liberated by it, mm-hmm. and so that
1: that moment is really when I heard vulnerability. I was like, that's a vulnerable moment right there. Yeah, like, was like <laughs> well, um, um, there, there's nothing more vulnerable than being in a state where you cannot move your entire body you yeah. know, you have literally no control over your very, the one thing you should have control over, you know, yeah. Yeah. and he accepts it, honestly. Yeah. He's ready to go write poems. Yeah, you know? like, he,
0: and he is so exceptional at it, and mm-hmm. like, and I say that with no irony at all, because, like, I love every poem that he attempts, and, um, you know, for better or for worse, mm-hmm. but, Okay, so those are those are our nominations. And so what I'm going to ask you all to do is if you're listening, when this when this releases to the feed, we are going to have a little Twitter battle here and we're going to say which one do you think was deserves the actual award for MVP for vulnerability? Is it Trevor's nomination of Ezrin or is it my nomination for Sorin? And I will not be upset if I lose, because I was also thinking of Ezrin as well. So, <laughs> uh, But you should vote for me anyway, because I like winning and I'm competitive. Um, I mean, Sorin, not for me. Um, you should vote for Sorin anyway, because I'm competitive. Um, anyway, that's that. If you want to nominate someone for the of VP and, and have them involved in the, uh, a Twitter battle, we can also... Uh, Play your nomination. And so send it in at thearchivy at gmail.com. Try to keep your voice memo down to two minutes or less. Two minutes or less. Okay. And that kind of brings us to our final segment, Trevor. Thank you for giving me this opportunity to go all the way to this point with you. This has been wonderful. Uh, I've enjoyed the journey. (laughs) I'm I'm learning a lot from you. This is wonderful. So, our last segment is gratitude. And gratitude is, I like to think about this as this is a moment or a character that has blessed us in some way. And when I say that, I, I mean that they have given us something, they've taught us something that we have learned from them, that um they we see something in them that makes us feel all warm and fuzzy inside. What like whatever it is, but they have they have blessed us with something. And I would love to to hear um who you are grateful for from this season? Anya. I am gracious for
1: Anya. Mm. Because the moment she's able to hear the story of her mother's, you know, trying to take a a stand and be the best queen she can be. And Viren kind of thinking that if he can just make her empathize and see the past as it was, that she'll make the responsible decision. And most adults would probably, you know, because under Viren's assumption, most adults who would hear that would finally see his way. But she doesn't allow the past to, you know, define her actions. She, wow. she, and that's a, and, and that's a very mature in the fact that she's like a child. Like, as More mature like, than I am, let's be real. Exactly, yeah. It's like, it gives you like a sense of hope. Like, wow, like the world should be like that. <laughs> you know, where even our kids can, look at this and say you know what this happened these things happened in our past and they're realities that we have to deal with but they don't have to define how we go forward now mm. because it's ultimately nothing would change without that moment that she demonstrated yeah no that's she's a powerhouse
0: of an awesome human being that's all i'm saying I, absolutely um, yeah
1: for sure okay Good choice. I love that. That's that's a great person to be grateful for. I wanted to bring her in somehow. So I'm grateful that like you had this because I felt like I could <laughs> bring her in like, like with that. So yeah, grat- gratitude, this is why we're here. Gratitude, right? <laughs> it's so all about gratitude.
0: For me, I, I mean, I've had the opportunity to be grateful for in, in every episode so far. And so it's, I'm thinking about like, is there a different angle that our conversation today has given me? and you know I I think that often I am not grateful for Viren because Mm. I'm I am I am often like critical of Viren I'm critical and because I just I see this path especially knowing where he's going in season three that I just like I'm like oh no this is bad news all the time everywhere but I want to tell you about why I'm grateful there's this moment where he is looking into the mirror and Erebus has pulled out his little box of like sus tools where he has like his goblet he has his knife and all these things and Erebus (laughs) spoiler alert is you know in in the mirror and holding up this dagger and he's about to cut his hand and Viren's like nope no, I need to think about this. And to this point, I'm like, dude, you haven't been thinking about this yet, dude. There's so much going down, and you like, you need to be thinking about what's going. I'm sitting here going, like, what are you doing? <laughs> um, but that moment where he's like, I, I need to seriously consider where whether I'm willing to go down this rabbit hole. Mm-hmm. And I just, I'm grateful for that moment in particular because it, it showed me that that this is, that I can trust him more, right? Mm-hmm. And that, oh, that's counterintuitive, I guess, but like that I see the humanity in him. It humanized yeah. him in a way that really allowed me to live into seeing that he is just as divine as either you or me, and that we are just as capable as making decisions the way that he did. And so
1: I'm grateful for that uh, humility check, if you will. Yeah. Yeah, there's a sense of, like, Viren's the most, like, reflectively human. Of oh, most, oh, yeah, oh, because, god, Because, because, because there, I know, yeah, and it's, it's scary, like, I could, like you said, I can see myself being Viren, I've thought, like, Viren, you know, like, if we don't think practically and utilitarian, then injustice is just going to continue, you know, and you can't be weak That's in light of it, and... I'd be, I'm really interested to see if they do more on like Viren's backstory because I feel like there's a lot of oh, they interesting to, development right? of how he got there that's just gonna make me feel for him even more yeah you know? I, I feel
0: like they have to there's definitely some things that are big underlying questions of mm-hmm. that haven't been answered yet so I'm, I'm excited season four y'all season four it is in production uh which is exciting um no date yet but it is definitely happening okay this has been a really awesome experience. I just want to thank you again for for being present with me and engaging in this vulnerable space. Right?
1: Yeah. No. This is this has been the the highlight of many months, honestly, <laughs> of activities. Um, this was really fun. It, I, I figured it was going to be a good time going in, but actually going through and experiencing it, I'm just like. I'm so glad to have done this. Awesome. <laughs> and I'm so grateful for the invitation. <laughs> I awesome. only hope that I was able to contribute just an ounce of what you know the the experience I had. <laughs> you know, no was. worries. I'm I'm certain that our listeners will get some joy out of all of this. Okay,
0: well, everyone, you have been listening to Bending Not Breaking with Ben Pruitt and Trevor Warren, and we are so excited that you've been with us. Uh, I want to take this opportunity to invite you all to find us on Patreon to help us continue to make episodes like this. Um, You can support us at BNB underscore pod and at any donation you see fit. Lots of cool bonus episodes with live episodes once a month. We have a Facebook group you can join, uh, early episodes. We have bonus episodes that go up on the Patreon. For instance, this one's going to show up on Patreon before it comes out on the real feed about probably two months before it actually goes out on the real feed. And then there's going to be lots of cool other stuff. So check it out. BNB underscore pod. Remember all the things on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, all the, all the social medias. Uh, I want to thank the arc of E uh, for hosting our podcast. I want to thank uh, Alex Mayfield. I want to thank Max Gongaware and Noah Blanchard for helping us with the podcast. And until next time, be well and do good.